Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, a, a very, very warm welcome to this latest in the series of uh, LSE European Institute uh, Perspectives on Europe uh, lectures. Um, I think when the country, uh, when the argument over Europe in this country, uh, not for the first time, seems to be generating uh, more heat uh, than light, um, it seemed to us appropriate to uh, invite a, a high-level speaker um, who is uh, very much respected for his uh, cool and uh, uh, analytic intelligence, and, also, and somebody also who could speak from uh, actual experience of handling Britain's relations with the European Union. So, who better, we thought, than Sir Malcolm Rifkind, uh, who uh, was, of course, uh, British Foreign Secretary in the last Conservative, Conservative administration from 1995 to 97, having been Defence Secretary uh, for three years before that, and um, is, of course, currently Chair of the House of Commons uh, Intelligence and Security Committee. Uh, Sir Malcolm is, of course, a, a highly uh, respected uh, member of Parliament, uh, and um, uh, I'm very pleased to say uh, for my own uh, constituency of, of Kensington, where uh, it is said that uh, even the, the squirrels and the foxes vote Conservative, not out of habit or tribalism, of course, but out of respect and esteem for Sir Malcolm. Now... Uh, I recall when he was uh, appointed Foreign Secretary after my own boss at the time, who was uh, Douglas Hurd, um, that um, uh, Sir Malcolm said that his starting point would always be the British uh, interest. You might say, well, what's exceptional about that? But certain conclusions, uh, 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 certain uh, precepts perhaps follow, uh, follow from that. Whether that premise leads inexorably to the famous uh, British uh, pragmatism, uh, we will have to see. But I, I suspect that it might do, but we'll have to see what uh, uh, Sir Malcolm says. Uh, my own sense, watching the Conservative Party debate from, uh, from one foot just inside the, the margins, if you like, is that there seems to be a move uh, towards a sort of middle ground uh, on Europe uh, taking the place, uh, taking place, um, perhaps driven, and I think probably driven, by David Cameron's speech uh, a couple of months ago, uh, a speech which received rather more uh, plaudits across Europe than one might have expected uh, a few months ago. Um, and I certainly look forward to hearing perhaps some questions afterwards uh, to what uh, Sir Malcolm has to say uh, about that. But uh, most of all, obviously, I want to hear, and we are here to hear, uh, Sir Malcolm's uh, thoughts. Uh, and uh, following our usual established uh, LSE practice, of course, um, our guest uh, will speak for a while, maybe 30 to 40 minutes, and then um, you'll be very happy uh, to take uh, questions. Uh, please note that there is a, a hashtag uh, uh, for this event, which is hash LSEGBEU. Um, and um, I think, uh, without further ado, Sir Malcolm, we very much look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much indeed for that extremely friendly introduction. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson on such an occasion once said that's the sort of introduction which my father would have enjoyed and my mother would have believed. So I'm uh, <laughs> grateful uh, to you. Uh, I come before you not as a foreign secretary. You often have foreign ministers speaking. I'm, a, I'm an ex-foreign minister. There's a splendid difference. You, you actually can, you don't have to travel around the world visiting airports every day of the week. When Hans-Dietrich Genscher was foreign minister of Germany for about 13 years, of West Germany as it then was, he travelled so much and so constantly uh, that the joke in Germany was whether people knew the difference between God and Genscher, and the answer was uh, 
God is everywhere. Uh, Genscher is everywhere except Germany. Uh, and that's a, a problem sometimes ministers have. Now, uh, I am delighted to have this opportunity to speak uh, this evening to the London School of Economics. It's a very fine academic uh, institution with a, a splendid uh, influence in the wider world. Now, I know this to be the case. Because in 1994, when I was uh, Defence Secretary, Secretary of State for Defence, I visited post-apartheid South Africa, a Secretary of State for Defence. And I had dinner with the new South African Defence Minister, a chap called Ronnie Casuals, who is an alumnus of the LSE. Casuals had been a communist member of the militant wing of the African National Congress that had believed in the armed struggle rather than the peaceful removal of apartheid. During the dinner, I asked him whether it was true that he and his militant colleagues had, as had been alleged, had training in the Soviet Union. And he confirmed, yes, it was true, they had been trained in Ukraine, I think it was. In later discussion, I asked him why, unlike Nelson Mandela, he had rejected peaceful change in South Africa in favor of militant armed struggle. He replied that it was because he could not believe that white South Africans would ever give up power until they had been defeated by an armed rising. I asked him whether this was what he'd been taught in the Soviet Union. He smiled and said, no, it's what he'd been taught at the LSE. <laughs> I'm sure things have changed uh, since uh, that time. This evening, I am dealing with another issue, that of the European Union and Britain's relationship with it. Many would see the problems as equally intractable as apartheid South Africa, but fortunately, no one is yet uh, advocating or recommending armed struggle uh, to resolve them. The European Union is facing one of the greatest challenges in its history. The acute economic crisis of the Eurozone, coupled with the chronic problems engendered by the European Union's democratic deficit, have caught Europe's leaders in a vicious cycle. On the one hand, Berlin, Brussels and the bond markets demand austerity and integration. On the other, citizens resist not just the solutions themselves, but also what they perceive to be the undemocratic manner in which these solutions are imposed. As we've seen in Italy in recent months, this risks the rejection of mainstream parties willing to do what is necessary. This in turn exacerbates the crisis still further giving impetus to increasingly radical political forces around Europe. The inevitable outcome of this paralysis has been a surge in Euroscepticism across the continent, different kind of Euroscepticism to that we're familiar with in this country, but nevertheless properly described by that term. Many in the Eurozone's debtor countries resent what they regard to be the punitive terms of the Troika's rescue passage, packages, Many in creditor countries resent being resented for the solidarity they have shown and fear future liabilities. It's perhaps to be expected that many Britons who for well-documented historical and cultural reasons have always taken a more sceptical approach to European matters are, if the polls are to be believed, even less convinced than they once might have been that the EU membership is a boon rather than a bane to their country's prospects. Although polling suggests that the British people are less likely than their French or German counterparts to blame the EU directly for their economic travails, the economic and therefore political case
for staying in has, in the eyes of many, been severely weakened. As a result, two, two complementary debates are being conducted. The first is that of the future of Britain's membership of the European Union, and of course, secondly, that of the future direction of the European Union more widely, regardless of whether or not the United Kingdom has a part to play. These debates would be necessary even if, by some miracle, the immediate economic crisis in the Eurozone were to be resolved tomorrow. The question of Britain in Europe has been a running sore in British public life for too long, and as such has proved a constant irritant on both sides of the channel. It needs to be settled. Likewise, the EU would always have had to face up to the full institutional implications <clears throat> of further enlargement and the Euro project, as well as the challenge of the economic and political rise of the developing world. The Prime Minister <clears throat> acknowledged these realities in what's become known as his Bloomberg speech in January. While addressing the immediate political questions of Britain's membership by pledging an in-out referendum in 2017, he also outlined a constructive vision of how the European Union might best configure itself so as to tackle the challenges of the 21st century. Now, the purpose of my lecture this evening is to give you my thoughts on both aspects of this discussion and to explore how these two objectives might be reconciled so that by 2020, Britons might be satisfied participants in a successful European Union. The alternative, if that does not happen, will have been the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union and a reversion to a new form of glorious isolation from the rest of Europe. Now, let me begin my remarks by asking this audience whether you're able to guess who made the following statements. The first is, Britain does not dream of some isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe as part of the community. The second quote is, I want us to be where we belong, right at the very heart of Europe. And the third quote is, I believe something very deeply, that Britain's national interest is best served in a flexible, adaptable and open European Union and that such a European Union is best with Britain in it. All three statements were made by Conservative Prime Ministers. The first quotation I gave was from Margaret Thatcher's Bruges speech in 1988. The second is John Major speaking in 1991. And the third, David Cameron in the Bloomberg speech delivered earlier this year. Now let me ask you just to consider one further quote. It is as follows. The European Union has evolved significantly since the last public vote on membership over 30 years ago. We therefore remain committed to an in-out referendum the next time a British government signs up for a fundamental change in the relationship between the UK and the European Union. That is actually a passage from the 2010 General Election Manifesto of the Liberal Democrats. This illustrates two points that one should bear in mind when considering the European debate here in the United Kingdom. First of all, the Conservative Party, which never forget took Britain into the EEC in 1973, is not nor has ever been inherently or implacably hostile to some form of European Union. Secondly, the Prime Minister's call for a referendum was not simply the product of the internal politics of the Tory party. 
It was also an acknowledgement of the depth of Eurosceptic feeling amongst the British people that has always, as I've indicated, been recognized even by our most radically pro-European party, the Lib Dems. Now, I cannot, in my remarks this evening, speak on behalf of all my Conservative colleagues. We are all Eurosceptics now, but some are more Eurosceptic than others. I would like to set out for you the principles of what I choose to call moderate Euroscepticism, the prism through which I consider these matters. Like the Prime Minister, I've argued and I continue to believe that Britain should remain in the European Union. Where there is least controversy in Britain is that it is overwhelmingly in Britain's interest as the main champions of free trade and open markets to remain a full participant in the biggest single market in the world with the ability to shape the, shape the rules consistent with our own interests through a process of negotiation and uh, compromise. There are those who claim that we can retain the benefits of the single market without remaining in the European Union. I will address those arguments first, but I want to emphasize that the United Kingdom's interest in remaining in the European Union are by no means limited to the single market. We also have an overwhelming interest in peace, stability and security in the continent of which we are part and in which both world wars of the last century began. While NATO continues to be the main guarantor of the security of European nations, including ourselves, from external threat, it is the European Union which has been the most important means and continues to be the most important means of creating, ensuring and extending friendship, cooperation, democracy and the rule of law within Europe. There may indeed are strains at the current time between Germany and some other states arising out of the Eurozone crisis. But that does not detract from the historic friendship that has been sustained between Germany and France, the voluntary absorption of the former communist countries of Eastern and Central Europe into the European family of nations, and the substantial progress that is being made as I speak, uh, led by the European Union in building democracy and the rule of law in the Balkans. Now, these achievements are as important to Britain as to other European nations, but they are not irreversible, and they cannot be taken for granted. The harm that would be done both to Britain and to the rest of Europe by the United Kingdom walking out of the EU should not be underestimated. It would damage the credibility and authority of Europe in the wider world if Britain was not part of it. It would remove one of the three largest member states from the deliberations of the EU, leaving France and Germany to dominate its membership to the consternation of the many smaller members. It would indeed be the most serious setback for the stability and security that the peoples of Western Europe have enjoyed uh, since 1945. It was Ludwig Erhardt, a former Chancellor of West Germany, who said, without Britain, Europe would remain only a torso. Now, that is not only a comment on the geography of Europe, but on the UK's essential role, both for its own benefit and for, the, for that of others, in the political integrity and authority of Europe in the wider world. The United Kingdom, too, benefits enormously by being part of the European Union in the trading negotiations that take place with the rest 
of the world in the World Trade Organization, with the United States, and elsewhere. As a state with a population of only 65 million, we would carry relatively little weight as against China, the United States, Japan, and as years go by, the new giant economies such as India, Brazil, and Indonesia. The EU is the world's largest trading bloc, and as regards its trading policy, Germany and the UK carry the greatest weight. Further example of where Britain needs to be in the European Union is the international action needed on the environment. When a nuclear reactor exploded in Chernobyl in the Ukraine, the effects damaged the health of sheep, of Welsh hill farmers in the United Kingdom. Pollution does not recognize national borders. An international response is essential, and British interests in these international negotiations are very similar to those of France, the Netherlands, Germany, Ireland, and all our other neighbors. Of course, our membership of the European Union has constrained our sovereignty on issues covered by the single market, on global trade policy, and in environmental negotiations. But Britain has always been pragmatic about constraining or sharing our sovereignty when we have been convinced that there are solid benefits, convinced of benefits for our prosperity, security, or quality of life, which will be assured as a result. Our membership of NATO involves significant reduction in British sovereignty because of our acceptance over the last 60 years of American command in peacetime over our forces committed to NATO. It was France, not the United Kingdom, under General de Gaulle, that walked out of NATO's integrated military structure and also insisted on nuclear weapons entirely built and developed in France because of a refusal to compromise its sovereignty. Margaret Thatcher, who was far more pragmatic than she has given credit for, understood, per or that she would have liked to have been seen to be, <laughs> understood perfectly well the benefits of sharing sovereignty at the European level in certain circumstances. She recognized that for a real single market to function properly, it would require common rules agreed through qualified majority voting and enforcement by the European Court of Justice. The resulting Single European Act of 1986 was a step forward for European integration and a triumph for the advancement of the British national interest. Struck a blow against protectionism across the community and after an Eastern enlargement across the continent. British prestige and influence was enhanced through its association with the success of the project. And it was welcomed by the British people, for whom the advantages were obvious. We do not want preferential treatment, just the opportunity to trade and compete with our neighbours on a level playing field. Britain has also found it acceptable to allow some of our most strategically important industries, such as energy, to be run almost entirely by foreign companies. Again, contrast that with France, which in 2005 adopted what I can only call a strategic yogurt policy by declaring yogurt-making Danone as off-limits to foreign acquisition. The issue in Britain is not about the need or desirability of conceding sovereignty in certain circumstances. But, and this is a very important but, our insistence that sovereignty should only be ceded or reduced where there are demonstrable substantial benefits in doing so. Where sovereignty is transferred or reduced, on the other hand, for doctrinal, aspirational or political reasons, that is rarely justified because it can only be done at the expense of self-government and democratic accountability. Sadly, from our view, 
Much of the extension of EU competence into domestic areas of policy, and I include the single currency and employment policy, has been advocated to build Europe, is the phrase, or to harmonize for harmony's sake. And Chancellor Cole has acknowledged he brought the single currency forward for political reasons, not because of manifest economic benefits. And that uh, inevitably involves consequential loss of self-government without the tangible benefits of the kind that I have described. Now, I can understand the rationale of some European countries, such as Germany, France, and the Benelux states, for the single currency. Euro membership may make sense for economic reasons if you're at Europe's geographical core, or for political reasons if you're part of a, a post-communist country in the East wanting to uh, entrench uh, new standards of freedom. But even in such cases, there needs to be an acceptance that a single currency will not work without much greater loss of political sovereignty over fiscal and economic policy. And that is why the strains are now so great. And they are great. I'd like to quote, if I may, from a recent paper from the European Council on Foreign Relations. It's not a Eurosceptic think tank, quite the opposite. But it has argued that the basic contract between EU institutions and member states in the Eurozone is unravelling. And what the European Council have said, and I quote their words, in the past there was an unwritten rule that EU institutions would police the single market and other technical areas of policy from common standards for the composition of tomato paste to lawnmower sound emissions, etc., while national governments would continue to have a monopoly on the delivery of services and policymaking in the most sensitive areas on which national elections depended. Now, they say, the European Council on Foreign Relations, Eurocrats have crossed many of the red lines of national sovereignty in the Eurozone area, extending their reach way beyond food safety standards to try and exert control over pensions, over taxes, salaries, labour market, public jobs. And these areas, they say, go to the heart of the welfare states and national identities. Now, we can easily understand that point in the United Kingdom. To have the ability to tax and spend as you see fit is the very essence of statehood and self-government. That's why we had the Civil War in England in the 17th century. That's what led to the Declaration of Independence in America in 1776, no taxation without representation. These powers must be underpinned by direct, not indirect, popular legitimacy. Discord is being sown across the Eurozone because voters in Greece and Italy and Spain, even in France, are coming to the realization that while they can vote for a change of government, fundamental issues on tax and spending are increasingly being determined at the supranational level. That is essentially the reason why the United Kingdom, in the interests of our democracy and self-government, not because of nationalism, that we decided we could not join the euro. Some Eurosceptics complain that three-quarters of our laws are decided in Brussels. It's good rhetoric. Actually, such complaints have little real substance. The overwhelming majority of European laws are the detailed technical regulations required to establish common standards in many different sectors of our economy and in the single market. They don't constitute a threat to our democracy. They go largely unnoticed by those who do not work in the sectors concerned. And nor can a single regulatory system be regarded as necessarily more burdensome than the alternative, which would be a thicket of 27 different national regulatory systems that it's been designed to replace. Now, Britain remains, as we speak, an independent country 
because she retains the core facets of our sovereignty. Furthermore, our opt-outs from the euro and numerous other areas means that we enjoy self-government to a greater degree than many of our European partners. Just as we retain ultimate control of our national defence, even though we are part of NATO, so we retain control of our fiscal policy, even as full participants in the single market. And in both cases, we would be free to leave should we decide to do so, and that is the ultimate test of sovereignty. But we should not allow ourselves to be seduced by false alternatives. There is a suggestion you often hear that we could continue to be part of the single market without being part of the European Union, like Norway or Switzerland. It does not, in fact, survive as an attractive option, even after cursory examination. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a chimera as an unreal creature of the imagination, a mere wild fancy, an unfounded conception. I can think of no better way of describing what some consider to be the Norwegian or Swiss options for British membership. Norway, in order to have access to EU markets, is obliged to pay into the European Union three-quarters of the amount in per capita terms as that paid by the United Kingdom, a member state. But in exchange, the Norwegians have the dubious privilege of being bound by all these regulations while having had little or no influence over their formulation. Switzerland's approach has been to try to negotiate as much access to EU markets as it can, but on a bilateral basis. The Swiss arrangement has been permitted until now because its market is tiny compared to that of the EU and therefore much more likely than the United Kingdom's market would be tolerated as an anomaly. Switzerland has even less influence over the content of EU law than does Norway and it's obliged to pay for the operational and administrative costs of the policy programs or agencies in which it participates. For example, Switzerland contributed no less than 1.26 billion Swiss francs in 2006 to the European Union to help cover the costs of enlargement. So much for the present. Let me now, in my remaining time, think of the future for Britain and for Europe. And the first point I want to make is that it's fashionable for people to declare the imminent arrival of a two-speed Europe. There are two fundamental flaws with this analysis. Firstly, the idea that all EU members have until now been travelling at the same speed towards the same destination is at variance with reality. It's demonstrably untrue. Since the creation of the euro in 1999, the, euro, the EU has been divided into by the 17 member states that participate and the 10 that do not. Some of the 10, like ourselves, don't want to. Others do not meet the criteria for membership and in many cases will not do so for many years. But the EU is not just internally divided by the Eurozone. There are Schengen and non-Schengen states. Most member states are in NATO, but four are neutral and are outside. There are those, not just Britain, who have opt-outs or special provisions in various areas of EU competence. And there are those who prefer decisions using community institutions, while others like France often insist on intergovernmentalism. The sheer complexity of today's European Union of 27 going on 28 members must be acknowledged and a more flexible approach to European governments developed accordingly. Indeed, the very notion of speeds of European integration is past its sell-by date. It carries the assumption that although countries may be moving at different speeds, 
they all expect eventually to reach the same destination. This is manifestly not the case. There is not and is unlikely ever to be political consent in the United Kingdom, Sweden, Denmark, perhaps some other states, for a federal or, or, or confederal uh, Europe. Opinion amongst the political class in Germany, France and Benelux does not yet demand that, but it will become increasingly unavoidable if full economic union, as currently contemplated, is to be combined with political accountability. Nor is it possible to argue that it's just a matter of time before all European Union states join the Eurozone. Quite apart from Britain and the Scandinavians who don't want to join, countries such as Romania and Bulgaria are like years away, and if the EU extends one day as it should to the states of Yugos former Yugoslavia or to Ukraine, membership of the Eurozone is not even remotely on the horizon. In addition to that, Ireland as well as Britain are not in Schengen. Cyprus is as divided as ever. Austria, Finland, Ireland and Sweden remain neutral states with reservations as to the degree of defence integration that they can contemplate. So we don't have at the moment a European Union moving to the same destination, but by different speeds, nor are we likely to have in the future. Rather, we have a European Union with different kinds of membership, tiers of membership, reflecting the political and economic realities of individual member states. Now, this should neither sadden nor depress any reasonable person. Given the unique historical objective of the European Union project, which will ultimately involve over 30 European states with their own histories, their own language, their own economic challenges and special circumstances, such a diverse European Union is both inevitable and welcome. Only those who conquest can aspire to imposing uniformity. Any union which is based on the consent of peoples, whether as individual citizens or as separate nations, must accept a high degree of diversity as not only inevitable, but also as desirable. My core message in this lecture is that these factors also, as it happens, provide a credible and attractive basis for reconciling British moderate Euroscepticism with an evolving European Union in a manner that will enable us to retain our membership of the European Union over the years to come. If we had to acknowledge that British exceptionalism could only be accommodated by all other European states abandoning their interests and agreeing to the dismantlement of an otherwise uniform European Union, then David Cameron's proposed negotiation would be doomed to failure. But an EU which already has substantial diversity and with more than one tier of membership already existing will continue for generations to come regardless of any British requirements. This will not make a successful British negotiation easy, but nor does it make it impossible. Angela Merkel has already signaled that by the substantial and friendly dialogue that she initiated with David Cameron since his Bloomberg speech. A further consideration is that the timetable for any new British negotiations should be compatible with the priorities of the other member states. The Eurozone countries are, of course, preoccupied with their own collective crisis, which threatens the single currency. They neither wish nor are prepared to be distracted by one member state like the UK, wishing to begin a general negotiation of its terms of membership. As it happens, the British government shares this view. The Prime Minister has made it clear that any negotiation would begin only after the next British general election, 
which is unlikely to be before 2015. Therefore, there is substantial time for the British government to develop its case and ensure that it is both reasonable and persuasive. Other member states, Germany and France in particular, are aware that this will be future business, but only after the Eurozone crisis is resolved. In any event, it will only be at that time that decisions on further economic and fiscal integration of Eurozone countries and the implications for the 10 non-Eurozone states will be known. But what are likely to be David Cameron's negotiating objectives when he presents his shopping basket in due course? There are those who are willing for Britain to remain in the EU but assert that our membership must be restricted to trade and the single market. It's inconceivable that that would be conceded by other member states. It would make our membership of the EU hollow in the extreme. It would point to us having to go the way of Norway and Switzerland, which, as I've indicated, would be strongly against our national interests. But in any event, what do such advocates actually mean when they say they wish to restrict our membership to the single market? They must know that for the single market to work requires both qualified majority voting and the supranational jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. I was Margaret Thatcher's Europe Minister for three years. She was well aware of that when she signed the Single European Act. And how can one have a single market without having some kind of common agricultural policy to ensure a single market in the agricultural sector? Of course, the CAP still needs significant reform. I recall it was once remarked that the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, was all about reconciling net income with gross habits. But there will still need to be a common agricultural policy. The same considerations logically apply to fisheries and the common fisheries policy. There, the need for reform has been even greater. However, a historic deal was done at long last earlier this year to reform that deeply unpopular common fisheries policy. What more does the British government now want to change? We need to hear from them on that. We already have a full opt-out on the single currency. We're not part of Schengen or uncontrolled borders. We're not under any pressure to reverse that. Our budget rebate, negotiated by Margaret Thatcher at Fontainebleau, continues to operate and has saved the United Kingdom billions of pounds over the years. We have opt-outs on justice and home measures. So Britain already has a conditional membership of the European Union. There's no great principle involved if we wish to add to these opt-outs in other areas. Some other member states have their own opt-outs, though only a few, such as Denmark, are as substantial as ours. Nor need it be so dramatic if we wish to draw, withdraw from some areas of integration which currently binds us. The EU now has statutory provision that permits repatriation of areas of policy that have been harmonised, though these powers have not yet been uh, exercised. A likely and reasonable package for the United Kingdom might be as follows. Firstly, there are powerful arguments either for the total repeal of the Working Time Directive or at least Britain's exemption from it. It has little or nothing to do with preventing unfair competition in the EU and has had many damaging consequences, particularly in the public sector. Secondly, the United Kingdom, as by far the country with the largest financial services sector, is entitled to negotiate safeguards that will ensure that no new financial or fiscal harmonisation measures will be introduced which would have a major impact on the City of London without the consent of the United Kingdom. Thirdly, we should press for enhanced safeguards that would continue with the free movement of labour for all citizens of the EU, but ensure that member states can prevent this right being abused when it is welfare benefits, free health provision or social housing that is being sought by migrants rather than legitimate employment. It's very likely 
we would have considerable support from other member states for such a reform. The most important objective of the United Kingdom should be a binding guarantee that no proposals for significant further harmonization of social, justice, employment or fiscal policy would apply to the United Kingdom without our consent. Now some may say, well that's all surely already ensured by the statutory referendum that we now have that is required before the British government could ratify any new treaty that transferred more power to Brussels. But there is a major problem that remains. If the United Kingdom in a referendum under current legislation prevented the British government ratifying a proposal that had been passed by qualified majority voting, that would create a major crisis, as we have seen with other member states when referendums have temporarily uh, rejected ratification of a treaty. What is needed, in my view, not just for the UK but for the EU as a whole, is a new system of reciprocal rights in regard to any future proposals for further harmonization. Instead of such proposals being divisive and controversial and only agreement being reached after painful negotiation, member states that wish to adopt them should have the right to do so. But equally, those who do not wish to adopt them would have a similar right. In other words, not something that has to be negotiated, but it would be accepted ab initio. Britain and like-minded states could not prevent those who have a genuine commitment to further integration from going ahead, but nor could the Federalists impose their view on the rest. The purists will be appalled by what I've just said and proclaim that this would create a Europe a la carte. But the reality is that the EU already has different levels of membership, as I've indicated. An EU that relishes diversity is much more likely to survive and prosper than one which seeks to impose a rigid uniformity regardless of national circumstances. I wish now to make a few concluding remarks on the way in which the United Kingdom and its government should approach this proposed renegotiation. If the United Kingdom wants to leave the EU, that is a decision it can take unilaterally. It does not need the approval of other member states, so even then negotiations would be needed on what might replace our current membership. If, however, we wish to remain in the European Union, but with different rights and obligations, that does require, of course, negotiation, which usually means a degree of compromise. In any negotiation, you cannot expect to get 100% of what you would ideally like to achieve. The Prime Minister understands this, even if not all MPs appear to do so. To get 100% of your objectives means your negotiating partners might end up with 0% of theirs, and that is hardly likely uh, to be an acceptable outcome. Even Margaret Thatcher, with her historic victory at the Fontainebleau summit on the British budget rebate, compromised on the percentage of Britain's net contribution that should be refunded. It will be sensible wherever possible for Britain's negotiating objectives to be concentrated in those areas where they can be conceded without other member states suffering damage to their own interests as a result. It should be difficult for them to justify to their own parliaments and public opinions. To take an example, releasing Britain from the obligations of the Working Time Directive for British doctors or nurses could not conceivably damage the interests of France or Germany or other member states. The other heads of government are also democratic politicians. The overwhelming majority will want Britain to remain in the EU if they can help the British Prime Minister without angering their own public opinion. Uh, there will be good prospects of agreement. We should also remind ourselves and the British public that the European Union is not to blame for the great majority of our ills. Of course we have legitimate problems with the European Union, 
But the EU is not the reason for our appalling levels of debt. It's not to blame for the low levels of our exports to the developing world, nor is it the reason we have a crisis of skills in our country. One absolutely final point. When we consider how best the European Union can survive and flourish over the years to come, and when we advocate a, diversity, a Europe of diversity that respects national interests and priorities, we actually do so as citizens of a United Kingdom that has had to face very similar challenges with regard to our own internal unity and diversity. For 300 years since the Treaty of Union in 1707, the citizens of England, Scotland and Wales enjoyed a single parliament and a single government. In the last 20 years, we have seen the establishment of a Scottish parliament and a Welsh assembly within a United Kingdom, as well as the re-establishment of a parliament in Northern Ireland. While these constitutional changes have been controversial, few would doubt that they were necessary. By recognizing the need for much greater diversity and devolution within the United Kingdom, we appear to have safeguarded the future of the Union of the United Kingdom. All the evidence at present suggests that Scottish voters in the forthcoming referendum on independence, even those who strongly support a Scottish Parliament, will reject the nationalist call for the breakup of Britain and vote by a very healthy majority to keep the Union unless, unless something very strange happens over the next 12 months. Now, perhaps this has powerful lessons both for the United Kingdom and for all other member states of the EU. The United Kingdom will survive and prosper by recognizing the need for reform and diversity, there is every reason to believe that that will be true for the European Union as well. The Treaty of Rome proclaims that the signatories are, and I quote the Treaty of Rome, determined to lay the foundations of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. We and our fellow Europeans should never lose sight that the treaty refers to closer union of the peoples of Europe, not the states of Europe. Our commitment to the United Kingdom is entirely consistent with this sentiment. Although European integration could not have got off the ground without the post-war idealism of our continental colleagues, Britain's focus on practical achievements rather than political vision has helped shape the project for the better. Long may it continue to do so. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Sir Malcolm, that really was, uh, uh, I thought, an outstanding uh, talk. I'm not just being polite as a uh, as sort of uh, as a formal host uh, of this event. I thought it was thoughtful. Your comments are lucid um, and uh, thorough and, um, and uh, also extremely constructive in terms of actually how Britain can actually put its case and maximize its interest um, without, uh, uh, without frightening the horses overly and... Um, uh, and uh, sending our, our, our partners off into, uh, into outright opposition. Um, it was uh, very interesting indeed, and uh, I'm sure it will generate questions. I hope it will generate questions from the floor. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a good half hour. Uh, please, uh, if you would like to ask a question, uh, please say who you are, uh, say what your affiliation is, um, and keep it short and sweet, please, and don't try to smuggle uh, sub-questions, further questions in under the main question, uh, because I'm sure there'll be, uh, I'd like to be able to ask as many people as possible. Um, uh, so you're happy to stand yes. at, at, at the yes. yes, okay. The gentleman, the, gen the gentleman at the front, yeah. Uh, yes, you can just wait, the roving mic is just about to come. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, John Yum, pro-European. Um, my question's on the euro. Uh, so, Malcolm, can you just uh, give us an analysis of why it's got into the mess it has and how it's going to get out of it? Because as long as it's in the, as long as it's in the current situation, uh, Nigel Farage is, is unfortunately uh, taking an awful lot of us for a ride. Well, I, I'm not going to enter into the Farage point. That's a separate issue. Uh, we all have our views about that, gentlemen. Um, the, the, I can give you a very straightforward and simple answer to why the Eurozone has gone into this mess, because it goes right back uh, to how it was created in the first place. It was a political decision, primarily by Helmut Kohl and François Mitterrand. For very honourable reasons, they took the view that in order to cement Europe, to make sure that, to make sure that the progress that had been achieved could not be reversed, that required a single currency. But they knew that if they could only get that single currency endorsed, either after referendums in France or Germany, which would almost certainly have voted against it, particularly in Germany, or if they had explained, as was inevitable, that a single currency can only function if you have economic union, and that means common control, not just of monetary policy, but of most aspects of budgetary policy and economic policy, public expenditure, and ultimately fiscal uh, cohesion as well. That really is federalism. That is creating a quite different kind of European Union. They knew that that, they must have known, they were too intelligent not to be aware that that would indeed be the consequence. But they took the judgment, perhaps for honorable reasons, that that would be for the next generation to sort out. And that is indeed what has now happened. It's worth remembering, you know, in the United States, we think of the U.S. having the dollar. It took 100 years after the Declaration of Independence uh, and, indeed, the American Civil War before the dollar became the single currency uh, of the United States. And you cannot have a single currency without, ultimately, fiscal and economic union. And uh, Mr. Salmond in Scotland is facing exactly that dilemma. He no longer wants an independent Scotland to join the euro, so he says, well, let's have a currency union with England using the pound. But of course, yes, you can do that. Anybody can use another country's currency. I upset Mr. Salmon by saying Robert Mugabe uses the dollar. <laughs> so, of course, that, that's possible. But you can only do it if you surrender any control over monetary, economic, and ultimately public expenditure policy to some other foreign government. That is the, the, the dilemma, that is the chickens that have come home to roost. I think just on the, on the decision to create a... Uh, to go forward with a single currency, and, and uh, there was also a deal uh, between France and Germany. I mean, yes, there was, there was an expression of German commitment to European integration, uh, but it was also the price Germany, but it had to pay for French and broader European acceptance of German reunification. And so there was a clear German perception of what its national interest, interest was. It was quite an, an interest-driven uh, commitment as well as a, an ideological or uh, European-type commitment. But, but the, the, what has now happened, although nobody could have predicted or did predict exactly the circumstances in which we now have this crisis, there were an infinite number of people who said you cannot create a stable, permanent single currency unless you are willing to move not just to monetary union but to substantially to full economic union and with all that that implies. And that was the point that was not acknowledged at the time, but which is hardly resisted now in terms of its logical requirement. Good. Another question, please. Yes. Uh, the gentleman at the front has caught my attention. Yes, in the beige jacket. Um, you can have the... Thank you. 
be happy to go on taking questions yeah, one at a time rather than bunching them. I think it's better to take questions <coughs> one at a time for this yeah. particular. John Strafford. Um, <clears throat> to Malcolm, you place great emphasis on the single market, and yet it is that single market that has tariff barriers against developing countries in Africa, the costs to them of getting over those barriers being greater than the aid that uh, they get from the European Union, shouldn't we be arguing for a free market rather than a single market? Well, of course, we should be arguing for global free trade, and the United Kingdom has always taken that view. But you can't get from zero to 100 in, in one go. It's very rarely in this imperfect world. And therefore, I think it is reasonable to acknowledge that to have 30 countries uh, which used to have massive tariff barriers between them, not just tariff, because we're talking about a single market, not just in goods, but in services as well. And that's why we have the free movement of labor as part of that. Uh, that is an, a unique achievement. Uh, Europe is light years ahead of Southeast Asia, uh, of North America, of any other part of the world in having created this free trade area. Now, if you are correct, and let's assume for the moment you are correct that there is an unfair relationship uh, with the developing world, insofar as that is correct, that, that can be rectified. Uh, the EU already has uh, quite a generous uh, policy of aid and help and tariff concessions, not generous enough. There's nothing to stop uh, European countries, if they wish to do so, making it much more generous uh, so that it doesn't depend on reciprocal access uh, to the developing markets of Africa or Asia. That's a political judgment, which is quite compatible with having a single market as we have at the moment. Um, Lord Heard of Westwell, I'm just on the far edge there. Well, I think we're very much in your, in your debt, Malcolm, for having set out your ideas um, so, so clearly. The, the, the heart of the Rifkin plan, if I've got it right, is, is really that you, you stop pretending that uh, everyone is moving in the same, to the same objective. Um, but actually to get rid of that pretense um, is going to be very difficult because it lies at the heart of so much of the sort of upbringing of the present generation of, uh, uh, of Europeans. Now, admittedly, they are uh, disillusioned. Many of them are disillusioned with the, uh, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the results. Do you think that we're within shooting distance of actually an agreement uh, that, uh, to use the words of the Irish president yesterday, that we stop having, pretending that we're all going to end up in the same place, uh, because that is politically too, too difficult. But we'd be perfectly content to jog along each at his own pace. Do you think that really will be something that David Cameron could come, come home with? Uh, may I say, ladies and gentlemen, if there's any moment this evening when I feel nervous, it's when I'm being, <laughs> when I'm being questioned by my esteemed predecessor as Foreign Secretary, one of our most distinguished Foreign Secretaries, Douglas uh, Heard, uh, and I, I listen very carefully at, at the feet of the Master. Um, I, what I would say, Douglas, is this. I think the for those who try to argue this is still a two-speed Europe and we're all ultimately going to end up at the same, same destination... That's like the emperor's new clothes. Uh, it's manifest nonsense for the reasons I've tried to indicate. And at some stage, I mean, most will acknowledge it in private. But it, of course it goes against the original aspiration, which was of a single common acquis and Europe would march united towards some glorious destination. 
But so much has changed in addition to what I've said. The original founders of the EU never for a moment anticipated that we would have a European Union of 28 countries by now, covering the whole, virtually the whole of the communist countries of Eastern Europe, west of, of Russia itself. Um, it is a totally different European Union. Uh, it's likely to include the Balkans. So any aspirations that you might have had for a Europe of six or a Europe of ten uh, doesn't need me to identify uh, some need to rethink the basic structure. And in any event, those in Brussels or in the European Parliament or elsewhere who say that they must be, we must march towards a single destination, they don't in practice insist on it in the negotiations that take place. Because we may in this country think it's only Britain who's the awkward customer. But actually, if you look at the list of opt-outs and of special provisions and of massive transitional periods, where you know, uh, that, that stretches in, into the glorious future. So I think we just must argue a point that is now actually much easier to argue because of the traumas in the Eurozone. Uh, people in Greece and Ireland and Spain and Cyprus now resent in a way that they have not had to address up till now the implications of intense integration in areas that uh, were not part of the original European uh, project. So, yeah, we've got a long way to go. But uh, I think if you've got logic on your side, if you've got history on your side, then you're more likely to, and common sense on your side, and national identity on your side. That's not a bad pack of cards to start with. Uh, when you are into a negotiation and taking part in what is uh, an unprecedented and unique historical process. Um, Peter Wilding, um, just, yes, gentleman in the corner there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maurice. Peter Wilding, I'm director of a, um, a think tank called British Influence. Uh, the aim of it is to promote British leadership in Europe. And I believe that there can be a reconciliation between the two points, between Lord Hurd and Sir Malcolm. I think Lord Hurd is talking about vision, and I think Sir Malcolm is talking about pragmatism. And there is always a tension between the two. And I would like to come back, Sir Malcolm, with a question, please. You might have recalled um, in the Financial Times in January, Janan Ganesh saying that the problem with Britain is that we have a delusion of weakness in Europe, not of grandeur. That the French would actually say that this is a British Europe, even now. And so my question to you, Sir Malcolm, refers to a question of tone. And I'll pick up a couple of points in your speech. The first point was in your peroration when you said it's a fine gentleman on the, con on the continent that uh, drove the concept of another close union peoples. But there are buildings and statues to Winston Churchill, our very own Winston Churchill, of course, was a progenitor of the view of, uh, of European unity. And so we have a skin in the game. But my question is this, and tone is the part of it. You said in your remarks about purists would hate what I was saying. And you were talking about a question of flexibility of some member states going on uh, in a federalist direction. But I would point out to you that the United Kingdom has a very important desire to do that. The European Patent Convention was an agreement between the UK and member states minus three. We drove that. And we also have a capacity to drive things in the single market too, in David Cameron's single market letter last year. Is it leadership we're lacking or pragmatism? No, no you, I, I think you go too far, Peter, you, because 
Um, yes, of course, there are many aspects of the European Union uh, which we can welcome because we were involved in helping achieve them. And uh, it's right, and the single market is perhaps the, the most important. Um, but uh, it is simply not the case to argue uh, that the European Union as it exists today is what the United Kingdom always wished to see or, or helped uh, create in terms of its overall uh, structure. Um, you know, you have to take on board the fact that there are different cultural and social and political judgments that are made when new European initiatives come forward. Uh, I, if th imagine two, meeting, two, two parliaments, one addressed by a president of France, and one by a British prime minister, about some new proposal for integration in Europe. And whether we like it or not, the French president will say... Uh, this will be a historic step forward, building a new Europe. Uh, this is Europe realizing its destiny. We must all unite in a common policy. And he will say nothing about how that's going to be achieved. Uh, and he, there will be roars of applause. And people know perfectly well that France, when it comes to implementing integration, can sometimes be the most difficult customer of all. It's rather like the clergyman uh, at a wedding exhorting all to be honest in their vows, uh, for marriage to last until death do us part, and everyone nods and agrees, and a very large proportion already have no intention uh, of living up to these aspirations. If a British Prime Minister used that kind of rhetoric to a British audience, immediately he would be interrupted by an audience, including an audience such as this, to say, well, hold on a moment, uh, when did you say this is going to happen? When will the legislation be introduced? Uh, what are the economic implications? What, have you worked out what the public expenditure will be? Have you thought of subclause 2, you know, clause 27? You know, that is part of the way we address political judgments. It wasn't just Margaret Thatcher, although she was perhaps a more extreme example of the type. Uh, who, uh, and that's why, yes, there is a difference between pragmatism and vision. Britain has vision, but we don't allow it to overcome our judgment. Uh, other countries have pragmatism, uh, but they often are very honorably influenced by ideals. All right, well, what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't countries have different ways of looking at the same issues? But uh, I think there are many countries in Europe uh, who would feel incredibly the poorer if Britain was not a member, precisely because we don't do the vision thing, but concentrate on the actual implications of very serious changes. And uh, it was the vision thing that got the Eurozone into the mess it's in at this moment in time, not pragmatism. Um, yes, gentlemen over there. Thank you. Uh, Ian Bond from the Centre for European Reform. Um, I was very happy to hear what you said about British pragmatism. Uh, but in your other role as chair of the Intelli Intelligence and Security Committee, uh, you, will, you will no doubt have heard that... Um, the heads of at least some of the agencies and quite a lot of senior policemen and some indeed who are on the, uh, the House of Lords uh, EU committee don't see the, the pragmatism in what the government is hoping to do with the um, justice and home affairs area and exercising the opt-out next year. And I wondered whether you could talk a little about how you see that and whether in fact you think that that's an area where we're allowing our politics to overcome our pragmatic view of what's in the national interest. 
Well, first of all, no final decisions have yet been taken, or if they have been taken, they certainly haven't been announced. So we don't yet know for certain what the government's detailed conclusions will be. But the area that you've mentioned of justice and home affairs covers 100 separate proposals. Uh, and the British government was faced with an initial judgment. You either had to accept them all or you had to get an opt-out of them all. And what was negotiated, I think very skillfully, was that we opted out from all of them, but we had the opportunity to opt back in to any individual proposal of the 100 that we conclude is consistent with our national uh, interests. And that's what we're waiting to hear, what is the government's final decision uh, on that. Uh, there, are, there will be some where it's quite a difficult balance to reach. Uh, I think you, you may have mentioned, and if you didn't mention, I would mention the, the arrest warrant, European arrest warrant and the role of Interpol, Europol, I should say. Uh, clearly, there are, I personally would acknowledge, uh, that there are quite powerful reasons why Britain ought not to be too upset about accepting that kind of uh, justice and, and home affairs uh, provision. But there are a lot of others which are either of no relevance to the United Kingdom or would be very difficult to reconcile with our basic principles of uh, the way the courts deal with uh, offences and uh, alleged crimes that come before them. So what people are anxious to do is not to... M most of Europe has a different kind of legal system, thanks to the Code Napoleon 200 years ago. It's a sort of more of a, a codified system, whereas English common law uh, leads quite often to different judgments, and that has to be borne in mind, not just in civil cases, but occasionally in criminal procedure as well. Um, if I um, uh, may, um, uh, Sir Malcolm, um, you, you, against the sort of the renegotiation, re repatriation, the radical, if you like, Eurosceptic agenda, you set out a kind of a realistic uh, agenda, as you, as you saw it. Um, and, um, but there is also the vision thing. I'm sure you'll accept up to, up to a point. It seems to me that's what David Cameron uh, tried to do with his speech uh, uh, a couple of months ago, to show that, you know, we Brits, uh, yes, you know, uh, okay, we often seem to be carping from the sidelines. We're, you know, always trying to hold things back and so on. But we actually do have uh, a rather romantic vision of Europe, certainly in terms of our policy on enlargement and reuniting the European family uh, after communism. But there's also there's also a question of reform and uh, and where we talk about policies rather than institutions and decision making procedures, so on and so on. Um, we're actually talking about reform um, and we talk about policies. Uh, that, that is, uh, I mean, he, he's trying to set that out as an agenda which can capture the imagination and which, uh, which, which requires, of course, action at nation-state level in terms of reforming their own economies, supply-side structural reform and so on. And uh, do you think that this has got a, an important part to play? We need to have some sort of, do you accept we also need to have a positive agenda as well as the kind of the realistic coming to terms with... Uh, of course, but you know, the ultimate vision thing is to be proposing a structure for the European Union that gives it the best chance of surviving uh, because the, the European Union's current structure is not some irreversible level of integration that will never collapse or never risk disintegration. If you look at the uh, very, very hostile response, it may be their own fault, but the hostile response in these countries like uh, uh, Italy and Spain and Cyprus and Greece and so forth, where there is a deep belief uh, that they do not have an opportunity to influence events that fundamentally affect their lives, because whichever government they elect nationally will not be able to overcome instructions from elsewhere. If that is not taken on board in some way that is relevant to the future shape of Europe, 
Uh, that will not just be a problem for a small handful of countries. There is a problem of popular legitimacy. And if you want to argue, for example, for a European Union, single currency, much more integration in, in a whole range of areas, you can do that, but only if you either already have or are likely to have political parties that operate at the European level. A European government that will actually be elected and can be thrown out in a normal political and democratic way. But the problem that exists in Europe, and it shouldn't, if people want to go in that direction, is that is not what the peoples of Europe, as opposed to some of the political elite, it's not what the peoples of Europe are prepared to tolerate. Certainly not at this stage in our history. Maybe 50 years' time or 100 years' time, it'll be very, very different. So if the European Union is to survive, and I want it to survive, then it has to be diverse, it has to be flexible, and the peoples of each member state have to feel that their own elected government and parliaments are able to actually have the power to determine the things that most affect their daily lives. And that is becoming less obvious uh, as this Eurozone crisis goes forward. And that is, I think, an unprecedented risk, but it's one that is not yet fully being dealt with. We've got time for a couple more questions. Yes, the gentleman up there. And then the lady. Uh, red, orange top. Uh, yes, gentleman here. Uh, David Wood, London Futurist. I want to continue the discussion about the future of the Eurozone. You have very eloquently, Sir Malcolm, uh, described the tensions facing the future of the Euro. I'd like to ask you what you think is a credible future for the Euro that would uh, be attractive for, from you, for you as a moderate Eurosceptic? Well, I, uh, even as a very sort of moderate person who wants Scot uh, Scotland, England, the United Kingdom to remain in the European uh, Union, I cannot see circumstances in which I would support the United Kingdom joining the single currency, even if this crisis is resolved. Uh, for the very simple reason that I tried to explain earlier, I don't think you should support a single currency unless you are prepared to accept fiscal union, banking union, economic union, and that involves such a surrender of self-government that I do not believe the benefits that would flow from that remotely justify uh, the loss of democratic uh, control. And uh, if I thought otherwise, it would be a different matter. Now, if I was German or f uh, French, I might take a slightly different view because I would be entitled to assume that all the major decisions that would flow from that single currency, to, with a European Central Bank in Frankfurt, with Germany as the largest economy, it is almost inconceivable that any strategic decision of an economic kind taken by the single currency will not be broadly acceptable to Germany and in its interests because of their geographical position, their economic strength. And so that's not a criticism of Germany. It is simply a, a, a fact uh, that uh, you can't, cannot ignore. But most of Europe is not in that situation. Either geographically, we are on the periphery of Europe. Uh, the Irish, when they were faced with their economic crisis, had left themselves so few economic levers. They no longer could change interest rates. They no longer could devalue. Uh, they could only cut spending and create unemployment. And that happened on an enormous scale because they had lost the power to use any other uh, means of influencing the economic problems that they were grappling with. And that's not just Ireland. That's true of other countries. So these are the real gut issues that governments, politicians, political parties, and the public 
have to address before they get carried away with the vision thing, uh, if, if one uses that phrase. Thank you. Uh, yes, the lady in the middle. Thank you very much for a fascinating lecture. Uh, I'm Millicent Scott from the uh, European Parliament Office in the UK. Um, you mentioned towards the, the end and the title uh, of your lecture, Ever Close Union of Peoples, um, and you juxtapose that to the EU, which is uh, a union of member states. How, how do you see the... Uh, ever closer union of the peoples um, happening, if not by the ever closer union of the political union of their governments within the EU as, as member states. Thank you. Once, if we are able to achieve a sufficiently diverse Europe, what my critics would call a Europe a la carte, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, if we can achieve that, then we will actually have a Europe that where the peoples of Britain, of Germany, of Greece, of Spain, not just the governments or the politicians, but the public, are comfortable with their membership of the European Union, where the EU is seen as an asset, not as it currently is, partly an asset, but partly also a threat, with the threat now beginning to outweigh the asset in some of these member states. So uh, it seems to me that is, that's what we should be aiming for. And I don't only really think that's a way in which the European Union survives, but it will only survive in a, in a... I mean, Europe is an incredibly mature, democratic part of the world, certainly compared to any other period in its history. And therefore, you, you have got to factor into the equation, not just governments and prime ministers and presidents and political parties, but public acceptability. And you know, no one seriously disputes, not just in the United Kingdom, I mean, it's the Netherlands, it's Denmark, it's Ireland that have had referendums uh, that have rejected various uh, treaties uh, and uh, have done so in a way that their own governments did not recommend. So that's a real issue. And it is very dangerous when politicians and governments simply try to manipulate their own publics on fundamental issues of identity and self-government. That will almost inevitably lead to far worse problems. We'll try and squeeze uh, two more questions in. The gentleman uh, over there. Um, and then I'd like to just ask if there's anybody um, uh, who, uh, if you like, coming more from the polls of, this, of the argument, either of a more, let's say, federalist persuasion, uh, who thinks that uh, Sir Malcolm's uh, pragmatic approaches, uh, realistic approaches for the birds, or likewise, or similarly, uh, any one of a sort of muscularly Eurosceptic persuasion uh, who thinks that his prescription would fatally compromise the British national interest. We all seem to be camped on a, I imagine, on a fairly sort of centrist, moderate ground. Um, I just wonder if there's anyone who wants to raise the temperature a little. Um, anyway, the gentleman over there, and we'll see what we can squeeze in after that. We've got another five to ten minutes. I would yes. also like to go to the title of the presentation, uh, The Ever Closer Union of the People. Uh, you said, and I'm intrigued by what you said, the original thought was the ever closer union of the people of Europe. But you're saying that those people never envisaged that Europe will include these Eastern European countries and the others. So what was the, what is the definition of the geography of Europe in that context? Well, it's simply when the Treaty of Rome was signed in the 1950s, it's not that people wouldn't have liked to include Poland or Czechoslovakia or Hungary. It's just we were right slap bang in the middle of the Cold War. We had an iron curtain down Europe. We, people couldn't even travel back and forth uh, to those countries. So 
It, Germany itself was divided right in the middle. Berlin was cut off from the rest of West Germany. So it, it wasn't that people didn't want... It's not that they did not recognize culturally. It's just that it was not a political option. You know, right up till 1939, it wasn't Eastern Europe and Western Europe, which is what I grew up being aware of. There was a place called Central Europe. Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, they were all Central Europe. They weren't Eastern. Uh, and that disappeared in our political language for 60 years, and it's only come back uh, since 1989, 1990. So as part of the reaction to the end of the Cold War, one of the most incredible achievements is not just that they're members of the European Union, but that has actually been a way of uh, creating democratic structures and respect for the rule of law, particularly in Poland, Czech, Czech Republic, slowly but increasingly, in uh, the other countries like uh, Hungary and Romania, Bulgaria, still problems, still serious problems. But now they know that if they <coughs> abandon Western, what used to be called Western political values of democracy and the rule of law, they will not be able to retain their membership of the EU. That's a huge discipline and a very desirable one. Um, the gentleman, uh, there's a gentleman up there. Uh, yes, I don't know if you're about to take out a more partisan position or not, but uh, um, I'm pointing to. You? Yes? Well, you were patiently waiting for some time. So I, I thought it's in. Uh, let's just come in. The, the roving mic is just about to be handed to you. Hello. Uh, Brian Mooney. I think I described myself as University of Life. Now, I thank Sir Malcolm for the observation that the euro was one means whereby Europe would not be undone. I put it to you that European case law may be another mechanism by which Europe may not be undone. There's something called the acquis communautaire, which means once the EU gets hold of a particular area, uh, power cannot be returned to nation-state level. There's the doctrine of ever closer union, which means that when the European Council discuss treaty changes, they're bound by that goal, which would also militate against returning powers to national level. And last but not least, there's a the whole business over competencies. And if you look at the European case law governing that, even if an area is judged to be national, the EU can still legislate there, and national governments still have to use power in a Europhile way. So my question is, is David Cameron pulling the wool over the public's eyes when he talks about renegotiating and bringing powers back? No, well, I don't think he is, for two reasons. I think, first of all, what you say had a lot of truth in it until the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, the Lisbon Treaty has, for the first time, uh, provision in that treaty allows areas that are currently part of the ACI, what you properly described, uh, to be uh, repatriated to the member states if that's what the member states wish to do. It doesn't, because it's totally worthless. It's like Alice in Wonderland. It's worth me what we want to. It's still bound by European case. No, no, no. no, no. For, forgive me. It's, it's in that you're entitled to say it hasn't yet been used. The Lisbon Treaty was only quite recent. It's the last international treaty that was signed. The provision is there. It will be perfectly possible if there is a political... It depends on whether there's a political will. But the, the European Union, at the highest level, ratified by all the member states, accepted the treaty which, amongst other things, allowed for the first time since the Treaty of Rome powers that had become integrated, centralised, if there is a will to do so, to be repatriated to member states. So we'll have to see how that works out. But that's what the treaty uh, says. That is quite important. But it's not just what treaties say, because ultimately, if there is political will, the member states can change the treaties. And what I'm saying is, if I'm correct, I may be wrong, but if I'm correct, 
that the vast majority of the European member states want the United Kingdom to retain membership of the EU and will be willing to look at possible concessions if it doesn't destroy the whole fabric of the EU, then there is serious scope uh, for a negotiation. Uh, I, I was in government uh, when Margaret Thatcher negotiated the UK rebate. That was actually much more difficult because any pound that we saved had to be paid for by somebody else. But she nevertheless, starting without a single ally, through negotiation, uh, managed to obtain the Fontainebleau Agreement, uh, which has saved the United Kingdom billions upon billions of pounds over the years. So don't underestimate what can be achieved by a combination of skillful negotiation and political will. And Angela Merkel's response so far, and she's the most important of the other European governments, uh, has been certainly much more positive in tone than I uh, anticipated. Why has the Van Rompuy of the European Council to said all that Lady Cameron will get is lip service because it can't be done? I'm not convinced. Look, look, we're, we're, the negotiation hasn't even begun yet. Of course you're not going to... I, I certainly would be astonished if all the other member states lined up to say, where do we sign? What does Mr Cameron wish? Of course, uh, we're ha of course you know, they have their own priorities. And a renegotiation with Britain is not a priority. But, you know, never forget every European head of government is a politician. They understand, just as they've got an audience, a public opinion in their own country to satisfy, they understand that is true of other heads of government, uh, including uh, the United Kingdom. I know we're running out of time. Let me just end. This has all been very serious. Let me just give you one slightly lighter example of how the European Union can accommodate even awkward customers. Uh, I was Foreign Secretary at the time. You may remember the, 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 the crisis over BSE, bovine spongiformic, the, the beef war, as it became known, uh, when the EU banned the sale of British beef for health reasons. And John Major's government reacted very adversely, saying this was grossly unfair. And uh, we started boycotting, going slow on various uh, discussions and decision-making in the EU as a protest. In the middle of that, I went with John Major to the European summit in Florence uh, in 1996. And the first day of the summit happened to be my 50th birthday. And in the evening, when the heads of government, the prime ministers and presidents, all went off to their private dinner, we, the foreign ministers, also had our own private dinner. And I was slightly late, and when I entered the dining room, all, it was only 16 member states at the time, all my 15 colleagues, in perfect English, and started singing, not happy birthday, but happy beef day. <laughs> Despite us having made a nuisance of ourselves, there's a lot of goodwill there, uh, because they all know they have their own political problems, where they will need allies and support uh, on other issues. Well, that's not just an amusing, but a rather, a rather telling anecdote, um, I, I think, and uh, a rather positive note on which to end up. Um, so, Malcolm, I'm sure, I'm sure we can all agree here we've had a really, really uh, stimulating uh, and enjoyable 80-odd minutes uh, with you. We're delighted you came uh, to our institution to share your considered thoughts uh, on the European Union. I hope they will get wide dissemination by all the usual channels and by anyone else who's interested in spreading the word. I certainly look forward to uh, receiving the full text, uh, full text of the lecture. But uh, thank you very, very much indeed, and you've done us proud this evening.